Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, the big news was that at ElixirConf EU, in Jose Valim's keynote, he announced that there is an ongoing PhD scholarship for researching and developing a type system for Elixir that is powered by something called set theoretic types. There's a lot more for us to learn. We'll have a lot more to cover over time. But there is a tweet thread that we're linking in the show notes where Jose was giving a little bit more insight into it. He says, set theoretic types allow us to build our typing rules on top of known set operations, such as union, intersection, and negation. Those operations map neatly to existing Elixir contracts and existing Elixir code, and include a screenshot to show what he's talking about, where one example was showing how type specs for a function can be interpreted using unions and singleton types where like the return type might be an okay tuple or an error tuple, like that's a union. And the other was an example showing multiple function heads with guard clauses, where the when clause is an intersection. So in that way, it's talking about applying the concepts of sets, unions, intersections, and stuff to Elixir code. Yeah, so in that tweet thread, Jose continued to say, we're currently mapping all functional Elixir features to set theoretic type theory. When completed, we will focus on adding basic type inference to Elixir. This allows us to collect feedback on performance error messages without any changes to existing code bases. So I don't know about you guys, but when I was reading through this, I didn't do CS. I don't even know what set theoretic type theory was. <laughs> well, I think that's why it's a PhD kind of project, because I don't think most of us have touched anything like this. I think the big point that Jose was trying to convey is we're just wanting to share what's going on and just let you know we're looking into it and really try to temper expectations saying, by the end of all this, we may not even get a type system. And there's a lot of work and research to be done. And when we get there, we might find this just isn't satisfactory. So it's just a very early stage, but theoretically, it's looking like it could map really well onto Elixir and there may be some good progress that they've already seen. Very cool. So this isn't a Jose and Co. You know, only you know effort here. There's several companies involved with sponsoring the project. This is academic led as well. So it's it's really cool to see that right that it's not coming out of business necessarily. It's coming out of academics. I've always appreciated that quality about Elixir. You know, a way that a language can be very practical, like Rails, right? I know that's not a language, but it might as well be. That's very practical, but it's it's hardly academic. <laughs> so it's hard. It can get you really, you know, really far pretty quickly. And Elixir shares some of those characteristics, but it's also like incredibly academic to its core and how it works and how it does things correctly. So I'm really excited to see how like types get in there. And also from what I can tell, just from the slides from his uh, Twitter thread there, it doesn't look like it's going to change the way that we write Elixir. I think Elixir is still going to look like Elixir. Like uh, I know that like when you start talking about types, things can start feeling like, you know, you, the, the, the impending doom of Javification of Elixir, you know, or something like that. Like that's not, I don't think that's necessarily going to happen here. What I'm going to guess here, I have no idea how it's going to evolve. So big old asterisk here, but I'm going to guess here that this is going to feel a little bit like 
a better dialyzer. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. You know, dialyzer is going to go away and maybe there's an, there's going to be another tool that can, you know, do this really well, maybe hopefully performantly. <laughs> well, I, I think the big benefit is that it could possibly happen at compile time, you know, as opposed to having to run it as a separate process and try and infer what you're being told by dialyzer. So all very exciting stuff. I know that this will be like at least monthly in our news. Yes. yes. <laughs> so hopefully, hopefully we'll see something. And if you're looking for some types today, there are uh, several projects out there that we can link to. There's one that's in particular called TypeCheck, but however, it's it's limited strictly to, to runtime. So, you know, we're, we're not completely without types, but I'm, I'm really happy to see that it's getting built into the language or at least investigated to be built into the language. So we've got a couple of resources that we're going to include in the show notes that links to more information about set theoretic types and some of the academic side of it, if you're wanting to dig in a little bit and understand that better. All right. Separately, we've learned that there's a Golang library called Ergo, E-R for Erlang, maybe, that is an actor-based framework for creating microservices using technologies and design patterns of Erlang and OTP in Golang. If you're interested in Go and you're also appreciative of OTP and supervision trees and pub sub and process monitoring and all those things that OTP gives you, but you would rather write Go. Or maybe you have to write Go. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you should go check out Ergo because it seems like a pretty cool blend of, of things, right? Go is very universal, right? The, the cross-compiling story there is, is pretty compelling, single binary. But you miss all of those supervision tree thing, you know, features. Ergo might be the missing tool for you. Uh, go check that out. Next up, we just wanted to mention that there was a patch for OTP 25.0.1 was released. We'll put out a link to the Twitter and the, the Erlang form URL. Looks like just a handful of little fixes here and there. So check it out if you're interested in that. And next, I just wanted to say that I really like Tailwind CSS and I use Tailwind UI, but sometimes I feel bad about recommending Tailwind UI because it's pay to access. And I know people from different areas of the world or different stages of their career may not have access to money to spend on something like that. So I found Flowbyte, which is a Tailwind CSS component library that has a lot more free components already created and styled in Tailwind. And I just wanted to pass that on as a resource. They also have a paid pro version, but if you're just wanting something to make a a page look pretty and just want some quick components that are already styled for like creating a rating kind of stars or anything like that, there's a good chance they have a lot more free components there worth checking out. I guess it's worth mentioning too that Tailwind UI does have some free components, but not a lot of them are free. But if you browse around some of them, the source code will be available if you're not signed in. Speaking of Tailwind, I recently swapped one of my projects over from using Tailwind Vanilla, I guess. I'll, I'll just call it Vanilla. Tailwind Vanilla, which is managed by NPM and all the post-CSS stuff, the whole, you know, the whole shebang there. Tailwind CSS also has a CLI, a standalone CLI to do all that processing for you. So that way it kind of sits outside of NPM and the package JSON and all that kind of stuff. So if you are trying to get away from the node, you know, packaging environment kind of stuff. And the Elixir community has been doing that recently, at least for the generators, for example, with ES build, 
There's an Elixir package now to manage ES build at the command line to build your JavaScript. Similarly, there's also a Tailwind one as well that leverages Tailwind CLI. However, up to now, it's been pretty basic. It's just been this, the Tailwind CLI, uh, which can just take a single, you know, a pass through your CSS, compile it. It uses auto prefixers, a bunch of stuff that it can do, but it's pretty limited in features. So, for example, one thing it couldn't do was import other CSS files. <laughs> so for larger projects, that might be a little bit prohibitive. You've got a lot of CSS that you want to divide up ergonomically. You couldn't do that. Well, Now you can. In Tailwind CSS CLI version 3.1.2, it was just released. It now includes post-CSS-import, which allows the Tailwind CLI to go traverse all the different files that are imported. Requires you to adjust a little bit of your syntax on how you're applying Tailwind things, but that's okay. And that's pretty normal. It's all very well documented in in their docs. But seems like a good release to mention because now if you're looking to go from vanilla tailwind in your project to the CLI and and mix managed, you know, stuff, now might be a good time to consider that. And lastly, just wanted to mention a fun quote from Adam Wathen. He is the Tailwind CSS guy. He had a fun quote that is just a general statement that applies to us here in the open source community saying open source is the right to repair for software. Nothing more, nothing less. Maintain that attitude and any frustration or entitlement you feel will be replaced with gratitude. Better for maintainers and better for you. It's kind of funny because in the tech press recently, there's been a lot of discussion about right to repair. And I just think applying that to software, the libraries that we're using, you know, keep that in mind. You know, it's like if something doesn't work the way you want or there's a problem, hey, you have the right to repair it. That's what open source software is. Just fun idea. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're being joined by our special guest, Chris Granger. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So Chris, before the show, we were talking about how there's been a lot of development happening in the NX space, the Elixir machine learning space, which has really been exciting. There's a lot of exciting announcements that have been coming out around Elixir ConfiU. And we were learning that you have been very instrumental in the Explorer library, the NX Explorer. And we wanted to have a chance to be able to learn more about this, how this is used, how this can help us. Uh, in the Elixir space, how this helps machine learning people, how they, you know, what it enables them to do. Because I've talked with several people in the Elixir space who are developers themselves. They're not doing machine learning, but there's a data scientist on their team. And they're trying to convey something to their data scientist friends and coworkers about what is capable and available in the Elixir space. But before we jump into all of that, I'd love to hear more about you. Like, what can you share about where you live and what kind of work you're doing? I'm 34 years old and live in Melbourne, Australia. I'm originally from Florida and spent about 10 years in the UK on the way. I work kind of in the machine learning space. So my company, Amplified, I'm the the founder and and CTO. We work on patents and R&D and intellectual property. The, The idea is to try to create a platform that scales organizational knowledge. So we use a lot of natural language processing, a lot of data science, and I picked up Elixir a couple of years ago uh, to build our web application. And I've been in love with it ever since and wishing that I could do all of the machine learning work uh, and all of the data science work in Elixir. So when I heard about the NX project, I 
jumped right in and, and wanted to, to do as much as I could to, to drive that forward. You mentioned that you're working around patents and things. Maybe you can elaborate a little bit on that. Amplified is meant to be a, a platform for scaling organizational knowledge. And the way that we've kind of gotten started with that is working on some of the problems that come around prior art search, it's called. When you're working with, with a patent, you need to know whether you can go to market with it, whether the research that you're doing is possibly patentable. And if there's, there's anyone that might come up and say, well, you know, this is invalid because it infringes on this patent or it was already obvious in the, the existing literature. So I was working on, on my PhD in innovation economics. And one of the things that I was really keen to do was to try to use all of that information that's in the text in patents to understand the direction and scale of, of innovation and how policy affects that. Turns out that if you get a good representation of a patent, a numerical representation of a patent, then you can also use that for uh, information retrieval. I joined up with my co-founder, Sam, who was working in the, the patent kind of industry, and he had been noticing a lot of problems with prior art search, with actually scaling organizational knowledge. And what I mean by that is the, all the, the information that goes into the patent search, that goes into the R&D uh, development when you're, when you're going and finding existing art, existing scientific knowledge, that often gets kind of thrown away after you've done it. And so Amplified is kind of attacking that on two fronts. One is using these numerical representations of patents that actually capture the technological concepts as opposed to just the words. Uh, and making it easier for people to go and find this prior art and find you know similar scientific knowledge, and then storing and operationalizing that knowledge in one place, so that when you go and and do a search the next time, you'll be able to do it faster, better, and learn from prior you, you know, previous you, and and colleagues that have done similar work. Okay, that that is. I was wondering if it was going in that direction, and that's very cool because I actually have a relative who is a patent attorney and he works from the electrical engineering, mechanical engineering kind of background. So he's very much involved with some of these big companies and their patents. And so I've, I've become somewhat aware of what's involved with that. And so that sounds like it could be a very useful tool, especially, I think it's a very intriguing idea to come up with a non-text-based or like numerical representation of a patent. That sounds like that's a lot of innovation there. So that's cool. Hopefully you've patented it yourself. Well, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds sounds like we're getting closer to entropy a little bit, reducing everything to (laughs) ones and zeros. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Now we understand kind of the space where you're working in. And now I would love to maybe introduce what Explorer is. And for those who are not active in the Elixir's machine learning space, where does Explorer fit compared to some of the other things we know of like NX, Axon, EXLA, and what have you? Well, the quick answer for someone who may be familiar with machine learning in other ecosystems like Python or or R is that it it fits into the Pandas space or the Tidyverse, DeepLayer, DataFrame space. But basically, when when you're doing any kind of machine learning or data science, any where you want to get insights or you want to build up a model, probably 80% to 90% of the work, is, this is like kind of a common trope, is data munging uh, or munging. I never know how to pronounce it. You get data and it's it's never clean, right? It, it's come from, in my case, I get it from you know different patent offices and it's 
all sorts of crazy. Or I used to to consult and I would get spreadsheets from from the government offices or people's databases. And so you need to take that data and you need to be able to massage it, manipulate it in order to get insights. You want to do that in a, a really kind of fast and interactive process. And it needs to be replicable, testable, these kind of pipelines from getting from this dirty data to something that's clean and actionable. Uh, and that's where Explorer fits in. Uh, Explorer is a library that can be used for manipulating that data, particularly if it's tabular data, if it's something that's similar to a spreadsheet or a SQL table, your CSV, your Parquet, your new line delimited JSON, same things. And you can take that and manipulate it, get it into an actionable state, something that you can then feed to your machine learning model or feed to plotting which is, I think, one of the, the really powerful spaces that, you know, where the, the NX community is driving something really powerful. So I, I heard some terms in there and I heard parquet, I heard like data munging. All right. So how is this machine learning? Does it help me decouple an ETL pipeline of just transforming data to like mach machine learning and, and explore? What's the difference there? So Explorer can be used for ETL. You know, really commonly people will, will reach for, you know, for R or for Python to do their ETL pipelines, right? And particularly when you're thinking about like a, a large scale ETL pipeline, maybe you're working with, I don't know, with with Spark or, or something along those lines, you're often working with data frames. So Spark has Spark data frames, for example, or you're working with SQL tables. And there's there's a really tight correlation between what Explorer does and what SQL does. But Explorer, at least in its first existence, or first iteration, it, it's, it's all focused on things that are being done in memory. The reason why that's particularly powerful is because data scientists are often seeking to kind of extract insights in an exploratory way. And that's part of the reason why I named it Explorer. It kind of jives with you know, X, which is common in the Elixir community. If you think about it, it kind of sounds like Plyer, which there's Dplyer and Plyer in the R community. And the first iteration of it, or the first backend is built on Polars, which is a Rust library. And again, Polars kind of sounds like Explorer, Polars, Polar Explorer. I just kind of threw it in that direction. But yeah, it's, it's the cleaning step. Lots of clever <laughs> stuff in there. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a lot of like wordplay speaking to other communities really is kind of what you're trying to also draw in and help communicate with. So that's cool. Yeah. One of the, the kind of goals that I had is to help kind of bring in some of the, the data scientists in other communities. So I have a friend who's a very diehard R guy. And that was actually how I learned how to do data science in the first place. And he's been kind of a, a litmus test for me or a compass as I've been going through all of this is what can I do to make his uh, workflows and, and the existing ETL pipelines that he has and the existing data interactive kind of visualization that he has? How, do, how can I convince him to move from R to Elixir? And he wants to. The, the rest of his company is using Elixir for their, their web app. But that's been that's been a real guiding light is to draw people in. One of the things I thought was interesting is the way Jose kind of explained what Explorer was. I think it was in an early tweet where he said a simple way of explaining it is kind of comparing it to spreadsheets and that Explorer enables spreadsheet-like data storage. And you mentioned like the in-memory aspect of it. So is that a fair way for us to think about it when we're talking about this? Yeah, I, I think SQL tables, spreadsheets, anything where you have kind of two-dimensional data. So the series component of Explorer is, you know, like just like a list. 
you can think about the kind of operations that you would do is vectorized kind of enum style operations. And then the data frame is just those series with kind of names attached and that they're aligned. So you've got these, these multiple lists and they're aligned such that you can say at values of this column, let's change this column in this way, or let's lead the, let's add these two columns together or anything like that. You can, you can think about it as a SQL table or, or a spreadsheet is, is fair. Yes. So how did you end up getting involved in this project? Because you mentioned this idea that you first came to Elixir through the web interface aspect, and then you heard about NX. So how did this all happen where you got involved? I have to say, I'm, I, I find it frustrating when I'm working with data that I'm collecting or manipulating in Elixir. And then I have to go and do the switch into Python or into R, depending on what I'm doing. And I'm you know, trying to operationalize natural language processing models, all this kind of stuff, and bring it into the web app. I've been kind of hoping for something like NX in Elixir for a long time. I really enjoy working in Elixir. I've always kind of said, we had discussions years and years ago about how data processing is really a functional task. You're, you're manipulating it. You're, you're passing this data through this series of pipes. When the NX project was announced, I had a look and I said, oh, are they going to do something like data sets? Are they going to do something like data frames? And I noticed that they were talking about using things similar to the, the TensorFlow data sets or the PyTorch data sets. My reaction was, was just, no, that's not enough. You need to, you need the, the, the data frames. You need to be able to do this, this kind of massaging and manipulation of your, of your, your data. I put that to the, the mailing list when the NX mailing list first, first came up and I kind of just kept an eye on things. And in the, the meantime, I noticed that there was an announcement for this, this library, Polars. It's a play on Pandas. It's, it's a Rust-based data frame library. And I, I, I kind of I looked at this and I looked at NX and I looked at, oh, Rustler is, is looking really cool. Is there any possibility that we can do this? And I actually found a library. Uh, somebody did XPolars. It seemed to be a project that, that they did kind of really quickly and put it up on GitHub and then just left it. Couldn't get a hold of the library of the, the author. You know, there was no, there was, there, it wasn't being maintained. And they were kind of, you know, these, these bindings, but it, you know, it broke the back of the process of bringing bindings to this, this Rust library into Elixir. And I'm, I'm not a Rust developer. That's, it's not something that I, I know really, really well. So it was great for me as a learning opportunity. And I, I looked at this and I said, this is, this is going to be the way forward. We're going to be able to overcome a lot of the challenges with data manipulation in Elixir because, you know, being a functional language with immutable data structures where you have to traverse lists in order to get to specific indices, all these kinds of things. We can go and just lean on this, this library, Polars, and it will get us to that level of functionality that we need to manipulate data and, and uh, actually pre-process it before we feed it to our machine learning algorithms. So I jumped on, on that and brought it forward. So when I hear that, I automatically jump to Rustler pre-compiled. Right, because we've we've learned about that, and it's been a topic that's come up quite a, a number of times. Did that come about because of Explorer, or just as that came out, was that something that has been you've seen a big help and a, a boon to for Explorer? 
Phils, who is the, the author of Russell Precompiled, he's a pretty major contributor to Explorer. Um, he's you know really taken up the reins and has been doing a lot of work on Explorer. So I know that that was a feeling of kind of pain that he, that he had had and something you know he was he was working with Explorer and uh, knew that it was a pain point. I wouldn't say that it you know it drove it necessarily, but it was definitely a factor. I, I have to say it's it's just been such a big deal. Uh, you know, five minute compile times on Explorer. Are, are painful and having to have the Rust tool chain when you go and, you know, you want to, you want to deploy a live book on lie.io and, and these containers, you know, didn't necessarily have the Rust tool chain. And then you do mix install and you're sitting there waiting five minutes. It, it was pretty painful. The other thing that I've been working on for the, the NX project is the tokenizers library. And that's also built on the back of a, of a Rust library. So hugging face tokenizers is a very fast Rust based implementation of common tokenizers and uh, built some kind of preliminary bindings to that. But again, once we get a hex release for that, it's going to be able to, to kind of ease that adoption process and, and bring these libraries into Elixir. So I, I think we're going to see more and more opportunities to kind of leverage the, the Rust community, particularly where the Rust community is trying to make kind of leaps and bounds into machine learning, because it's definitely a driving force there as well. Um, and we'll be able to to bring those into Elixir in a really pain-free way, thanks to Rustler Precompiled. So you mentioned Polars in there a lot. Now, I know that when NX was announced, EXLA was was talked about as as being a backend, and that there's other talks of like how, how to leverage the GPU, and if you don't have a GPU, it would use CPU. Anyway, the idea of a backend for it. Is Polars the only backend? Is, is, is that a fair way to categorize these things? Is there something, is there another thing here that it can work with? Right from the get-go, Explorer has been designed as an API and as a contract. It's it's a behavior. And that's that's you know copied directly from NX. The idea I think is stroke of genius by Jose and and I wanted to, to kind of steal that. So the idea with Explorer is that because it's a contract, because it's a behavior, anything that you that comes up that could implement these functions, that could implement these data frame functions you can create a backend and plug it in and uh, Explorer will work with it. Now, one of the really cool things about that that's that's different from using the the GPU and, and the CPU kind of backends and, and all that, sure, you can grab any other data frame implementation and, and plug it in. If there's a faster one, an easier one, what have you. That's very cool. But you can also plug things like SQL. So one of the things that just is magic to me when I'm working in the R community, when I'm working with, with dplyr, there's a, there's a library called dbplyr, and they actually have a very similar concept of backends as well. And so you can write a SQL backend and use your Explorer functions as an API to your SQL tables. You can do the same thing if, let's say, you want to use uh, Data Fusion and Ballista in the Rust community and, and build a backend for that. You could do distributed data frames, and it would be completely transparent. And you can do things like a backend transfer. So let's say you're working on a SQL table on a remote database. You can collect it down to your, your local machine, and you could actually join it with a table that's on your local machine or in another database. And the transfer would happen kind of transparently for you. A similar concept to, let's say you're working with a data frame locally. It's really big. Let's say you're working on like a many gigabyte data frame locally and you're struggling or it's growing and it's it's reaching the limits of what you can do in memory you could once you know a backend is built that that uses ballista you could 
transfer it to the Ballista backend uh, to say, let's say you've got a cluster and use the exact same code, the exact same kind of manipulation tasks and use the same API. So you can kind of transfer these functions that you write and the manipulations that you write to really any data location. Okay. So let me explore with you (laughs) the idea of getting it back to the everyday developer that doesn't have a lot to do with machine learning. Okay. So, so explore totally makes sense to me now. What it does is is to help anyone that is trying to explore the data, this two dimensional thing. So when you say two dimensional data, I think ah, spreadsheet. And then the, and then the next thing I think of is Excel. And then the next thing I think of is maybe, maybe, you know, Google sheets or something like that. Like, okay. So is there something here? Am I uh, totally off my old man rocker here? If I just, if I just suggest that there could be a backend for uh, an XLSX <laughs> spreadsheet, <Sure>. right. <laughs> or, or if it's too large, maybe we can lift it to the cloud and it can be a G sheets, you know, API backend here. Like what, how old am I? Is this, is this <laughs> too old? Am I am I too, am I Microsoft accessing this too much here? I'll say that if you have an API to that data format that can implement the functions that are in Explorer, you can do it. Now the the question then is kind of your uh, your Jurassic Park. The scientists were so worried about whether or not they could. They didn't they didn't think about whether they should. <laughs> Certainly, I think I think you could. I don't know if you should. <laughs> <laughs> when I first heard Jose talk about it and compare it to spreadsheets, I thought, oh, does this mean we could create a live view UI of a interactive collaborative spreadsheet like a Google Docs and have these functionality things implemented through Explorer? Does that even make sense? Absolutely, it does. This is one of the places where LiveBook is just so exciting to me. You know, we've got the announcement of smart cells and those are, are super cool. I could imagine a world in which you can do visual data manipulation in your live book, and that's generating Explorer code. I I think that that would be a a very cool kind of uh, direction to take it. So we t- we talked about Rust a lot here and these different kind of pluggable backends, which I think is is really interesting. But I I also know that in Elixir lands, when folks are exploring, see I see I tied that back into. <laughs> are exploring, you know, adopting Elixir, they, they might be coming from these other languages. Rust, you know, is, 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 is there. JavaScript is, is there. And these are typically like objects oriented, mutable, you know, languages, right? That always tends to come up on commentary sites of like, well, once you're in a functional language, you know, there's, there's low level issues with, with stuff like this. And in your case, you're trying to explore and, and go through all of this, all this huge data yeah, what what is what's the performance story here? And and I'll set you up here with a little bit that like I know that Discord has created a couple of libraries to help with this and they leverage Rust underneath because of some of these like mutable data structures. Like is there something here to it that that, that like is Explorer doing something something extra here to help with performance? Not directly. This is one of the places where the Polar's library, it's really fantastic. Richie, the, the author of, of Polar's, has been putting forward these amazing kind of optimizations to make this one of the fastest data frame libraries around. We're not using mutability directly. And the reason for that is because we didn't want to surprise Elixir developers. This has actually been a bit of a challenge. So when you're working with 
data frames. We wanted to keep the 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 kind of functional core and to the you know to the end user it needs to be immutable. It needs to appear to be immutable. That's actually a challenge with some of these Rust NIFs. So let's say you're working with a very large data frame and you're stringing together these operations. So when you're doing that right now, what can happen is that these resource objects, NIF resource objects, are being copied. And so every time this uh, the function is called against it, you get a, a, a completely new copy of a data frame. And that can that can add up very, very quickly. And it can add up before the GC is able to, to clear the memory. So these are atomically reference counted pointers. The memory is released when basically Erlang, the, 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 the beam says, We're no, we no longer have a reference to this. So it jives really well with, you know, the way that Rust kind of works with things going out of scope and, and dropping the memory. But one of the challenges, yeah, is, is, is that we're, we're actually racking up the memory sometimes. So that gets alleviated with, uh, there's a, a lazy API to the Polar's library. So the challenge must be shoehorning everything into a, a lazy enumerable or a stream in Elixir terms, right? Very similar concept, except in this case, the stream is actually the, the operations. So what the lazy API does is it allows you to stack together these these operations. It it will then optimize the query. It'll do things like predicate pushdown. You get all this kind of cool optimization stuff that's often happening on the database in SQL. And then you just have one operation on the data frame. That's, I, I think, really, really powerful. It means that things are going to go faster and you don't actually do the operation and, and create a new data frame until you need it. But the mutability thing that you had mentioned was actually one of the, the directions that I had considered going. And I, I spent a long time kind of discussing this with, with Jose and, and he had suggested it as well as using the lazy API for everything, not actually exposing a separate eager API and, and lazy API. And in fact, basically, any time that the lazy API gets computed, kind of silently swapping that out from underneath the, the user so that they have no idea, uh, the end user, they have, they have no idea that the library is actually mutating the data because the realization versus should be always equivalent to the, the kind of stream of operations that are going to be. Went a different direction, found that that was a bit challenging and trying to kind of sneakily mutate data and keep the API immutable is, is, is more of a challenge than it was worth. We're exposing the, the lazy API and the, the eager API as, as two separate things. But it is, it's definitely a possibility, and I think that there's a lot of scope to do that when, we're, when you're working with Rust. So coming back to this idea that David brought up about like the, the typical Elixir developer who's not in the machine learning space, just thinking about ways that this can be used. It's a tool that works for representing two-dimensional data. That's something we get. Like we see CSV files all the time. We might be, someone might actually, you know, export an XLS X file to us and we're supposed to do something with it, right? Is this a tool that we can use to help with some of those tasks? A hundred percent. Absolutely. So there, there are a couple of examples. One is from my own work. One of the, the things that we do is that we export a CSV or a spreadsheet of the kind of work that you've done in Amplified. So let's say you're going through a, a project, you've put in a description of your invention, and you get a list of patents that, that we suggest are similar. You go through and you kind of, yeah, this one's similar. No, this one I, I want to look at later. This one, we're going to trash it. And then later you want to show your boss who, you know, we, we now have kind of collaborative features so you can bring your boss into Amplified. But before that, and, and still, maybe you want to send it to your lawyer. 
you could export a, a CSV or a spreadsheet of those patents that you had reviewed, you know, what you had marked and kind of a link to them and all that kind of stuff. It was so painful to do this in just pure Elixir because we we're doing a lot of these kinds of we're trying to do joins in memory. We're trying to, you know, do filtering in memory. And we ended up with a file, you know, that was probably 500 lines long or 600 lines long to do everything that we needed to do to export this spreadsheet. And we then were able to, to use Explorer and do the same things. And the, the controller is now 100 lines long. It's very, very short. And we're able to kind of do those tasks much more quickly. It's faster. Uh, and cleaner, easier to understand. Another example is I, I I know of someone who's actually using Explorer in production now, which I was so thrilled to hear. <laughs> they're basically they're getting this streaming Prometheus data, and it's you know it's structured. It's it's effectively NDJSON, and you're you're getting this stream of events. They wanted to be able to explore those logs kind of on the fly as they were happening, roll them up for, let's say, the last hour or something like that. So instead of interacting with a database at all, they're able to, to do that in memory. And they're able to actually take in these chunks that are coming from Prometheus and build a data frame and then explore things within that data frame, do you know grouping operations and all that kind of stuff. And it never needs to actually go to a SQL database where you would uh, kind of traditionally do some of those, those analytics. I think that there are kind of countless ways. Anytime that you, where you have data, I know I often will end up with a list of maps or a map of lists, and they're, they're really aligned. They really should be a two-dimensional data structure. And I want to be able to, you know, kind of manipulate them in the way that I learned how to do in R. And I find it sometimes really frustrating that I can't. So I can, I can use Explorer now, and I find that really exciting. I've worked with lots of times where you have like lists of maps and you want to do operations. Maybe it's filtering or something. It's all in memory. It's like, wow, this sounds perfect. This, this is like the use case I can imagine, especially if I'm, you know, if anyone who's played with pivot tables or in something with Excel, where you're able to tease out data that's otherwise hard to discover. So then, uh, then I have to ask this question of, well, is this using anything special? Like, can I run this on regular hardware? Does this need a GPU? What is it talking to and implementing this? Is it just like general purpose? Like what, anything I need to be aware of in that direction? Yeah, is nerves out of the question here? <laughs> you know what? I, I actually think depending on the, the kind of the backend that you use, you can put it anywhere. So this is one of the cool things about using Rust and using those Rust binaries is that you can put it anywhere that you can put Elixir because you can cross compile Rust. And that's one of the cool things about Rustle precompiled is that we're, you know, going and building these binaries for all these different architectures and, and things like that. GPU, not at the minute. It's always kind of surprised me that there isn't more focus on GPU compute for, for data frames, but I just, I guess it's just not necessary, but it seems like it would, it would fit the bill. I should, I should mention, sorry, that you, you could even go and use a, a Wasm binary, binary and do the entire thing in the browser. <laughs> You, you talked about how to export that data out for use with the, the lawyer, right? To like export to somewhere somewhere else. And I'm also aware of like in, in the database world, you can dump a SQL file, right? And re-import it. But there's also other ways to communicate that same data. It, it contains the types and all that stuff too, like Parquet is, is what I'm thinking of. Is there an equivalent kind of like terminology or tool set for data frames because because when i when i hear data frames i still i still think that that stuff can be ex like that export is a spreadsheet right it's just huge and 
But is there like a more portable export for for these tools to be able to like import these data frames and like explore in similar in similar ways that like holds more than just a spreadsheet's worth of information? <laughs> well, I tell you what, I, I've seen people really push the limits of what you can do in a spreadsheet. And I've also, you know, there's there's no lower bound on what you can do with a data frame. I, I've, I've found data frames to be useful even for 20 or 30 rows. Um, so you, you can kind of push the limits on both, but absolutely. So spreadsheets are one way that you can do it. You can <laughs> read and write spreadsheets. We don't actually have the API for that now in Explorer, but it's definitely on the roadmap. You know, CSV is a really common portable format and you can read and write CSV, but yes, Parquet, Avro, if you wanted to go in that direction, and New Line Delimited JSON. Basically, you know, any of these, anything where you can imagine it, you can do it. But one of the cool things with Polars is that it's built on the Arrow memory model. So you can use their IPC format. And that's actually very, very fast for reads and writes and even allows you to memory map. So this is, you know, kind of one of the cool things about the, the Lazy API is that you can use some of these data formats that allow you to not read everything into into memory all at once and do this kind of online analytical processing and save in formats that would allow you to do that in the future you can you can save to you know ipc or or parquet gotcha and that and that was apache arrow that you said right that's right yes apache arrow so you mentioned this idea of being able to use this data frames library even in cases where it's like not not huge sets of data like even 30 rows you know, for me, novice coming to this new, what are some functions that would be something that would be a selling point for me to say, oh, I can do that? Is there something that is already built in the library that would be helpful for me? Definitely. So one of the the kind of, I think, eye-opening things that I, I came across when I first started working with data frames was the ability to do Back when I first started, they, the, the functions were often called melt and cast. And now they're often called, you know, pivot longer, pivot wider. But basically, the situations where you want to conform to what we would call tidy data kind of functionality. And what you can do is, okay, let's, let's say you have uh, this data frame and it's got many, many columns and very few rows. In that case, maybe the columns really represent an observation in and of themselves. Maybe they're a variable. What you can do is you can pivot that so that it's longer. And so each row then becomes some sort of ID along with the column name, along with the value. You could send it off to Vega Lite. You could use Vega Lite to group each of those columns that you had then pivoted down, send the values to it, and you can, you can plot by each column, by each group, something along those lines. They're really quite magical. Same with the group by operations. So everything that you do in Explorer, most things that you do are group aware. So let's say you've got some data and you've got multiple organizations with with individuals for each organization, and you want to find the mean per organization for some value. Explorer would allow you to do that very quickly without kind of having to you know rely on does my sql implementation have a group by implementation you can do it do it in in memory and get those kinds of insights very rapidly i can't not mention this because it's uh it's pretty helpful in a lot of libraries when it's here but there's a page that's on hex docs that you somebody written uh, maybe maybe to you i'm assuming 10 minutes to explore which is like introductory guide and like tutorial of all the different things that you can do. Like one of those examples you gave. So maybe one more example that I can give is if I somehow get, you know, a two dimensional data in a data frame, 
I have all these columns and rows, and one of those columns is year, and it's completely random order. I can arrange the data. I do it data frame dot arrange, pass in the data frame, and then say the column is is year or something like that. Like, and it does it. I can picture it in my head because Excel has been burned in, into my retinas uh, as long as I've had to stare at it. But to do it in code would be you know, a couple a couple lines here that I can think of, right? But with with Explorer, it would be data frame data range year, all right, and 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 then you're done. That's right. That's pretty helpful and super fast <laughs> and, and fast, which is great. And there's so many more examples in that 10 minutes to Explore page. It sounded like that 10 minutes to Explore is a live book notebook. Is that right? That's right. And I, I, I've got to say, this is one of the coolest things. I did a, a little talk at one of the, the local meetups recently, and I jumped to Livebook in Hexdocs and immediately said, okay, run in Livebook. And people's faces just, it was, a, they were just the sheer astonishment. <laughs> I, I just did it. That face was just on my face just a minute ago. <laughs> I think that this is one of the, the coolest things. The, the community is, is so creative. Jose is brilliant and can can see all of these kinds of things, but the, the whole Elixir community is is kind of rallying around the ways that we can bring these tools that were built for machine learning into making Elixir, you know, and continuing to make Elixir because it's already incredibly ergonomic and just making it that much more ergonomic. The speed with which you can discover something and try something out now that you can put a live book in your hex docs. Oh man, I'm really looking forward to seeing that continue to to grow and spread with the, the adoption. Are there any other particular resources you would point someone to for getting started with this so they could start to wrap their head around what this can do for them and just playing with it? I've got to say, I, I need to write more blog posts and, and spend a bit more time kind of doing the, the evangelizing. I wrote a blog post that kind of explains the, the reasoning behind it, shows uh, one or two examples of how it's similar. Actually, go and look at the, the dplyr library in, in R. And if you have a look at that and say, oh, I can, I can do this, I can do that. And you can almost immediately transfer that back to what you can do in Explorer. But for right now, 10 minutes to Explorer is definitely the go-to. And I wrote a lot of doc tests to try to give people examples of what they can do. So if you jump into the docs, you can you can kind of see different data manipulation examples for each of the different kind of verbs that are the functions uh, in the data frame library. Very cool. All right. So Chris, I appreciate you taking the time because when everyone was originally talking about data frames, data frames, it's like, I don't, I don't know what that means. So I really feel like I've got my head around that. It's like, oh, that really is just two dimensional data. And, that act- and when I actually apply that to things I already know, Oh, okay. I get it. So this is actually something that actually among the other options like Axon and other things for me as a regular Elixir dev, this seems to be like the one that I could actually reach for in my regular apps and benefit from today without having to go and learn machine learning things. Is that right? Yeah, no, that's I, I, that's 100% the case. Anytime that you see that where you've got a list of maps for example, or, or a map of lists, and they're all the same length, and they all kind of align with each other, and you want to do some operations, uh, you want to gain some insights from that, you can create a data frame and explore. And I'll say uh, one of the very cool things that has uh, kind of come out is the, the table library. So there's a table protocol that actually is this kind of quite low-level implementation of, is this data tabular? And if it conforms to that, that tabular structure, 
then you can very readily make a, a data frame out of it. So anything that implements the table protocol, you can make a, a data frame in Explorer out of and, and immediately start doing doing manipulation. So Chris, are people able to get involved with adding any functionality or involved with the project? Are you open to PRs? What's the situation? Love PRs, love involvement. So this is my first time maintaining a library, an open source library. And it was just so thrilling to see people just randomly start, you know, raising issues and and raising PRs. And so please continue to give me those endorphin hits. Uh, It's very exciting, but (laughs) it's a big project. And I think one of the things that we kind of covered today is how flexible it is and how many different use cases you can have for a data frame. So I'm very open to hearing people's use cases, how they want to change it, you know, drive it forward. Anyone who's a Rust dev, you know, kind of in their day job who can clean up my probably terrible Rust and make it make it better. And we're we're kind of doing a big drive at the minute to implement the lazy data frame back end. Anyone who wants to get involved with that more more hands on deck, always appreciated. And if people want to get in touch with you or follow you online, where should they go to do that? Probably Twitter. Uh, I'm on Twitter and you can always reach me there. Well, thank you, Chris. I really appreciate your time visiting with us from across the world in Australia. So it's been a pleasure just being able to learn more about this. And I appreciate all the work that you've put into this. Thanks so much for having me. It was really fun chatting about it. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.